0: Zora Neale Hurston is recognized as one of America's greatest authors. Her novel, Their Eyes Were Watching God, is taught in classrooms around the United States. And critics love it, too. The BBC said it was one of the 100 books that shaped our world. But during her lifetime, her work was not as widely celebrated. She butted heads with other figures in the Harlem Renaissance— a 20th century literary movement that produced some of the most influential black artists and thinkers in American history. When she died, she was buried in an unmarked grave. It seemed like her work and her memory would be lost forever. Until the writer Alice Walker came along. In 1975, Walker flew to Florida to find Hurston's grave. She wrote about the journey for Ms. Magazine in an essay called Looking for Zora. And it's pretty incredible just on its own as a narrative. I mean, Walker lies
1: about being Zora Noor Hurston's niece, <laughs> flies to Eatonville where she's been corresponding with a dissertation student who's writing on Zora no. Hurston in an attempt to find Zora's unmarked grave and market.
0: In her nine-page essay, Walker describes her time in Florida trying to locate Hurston's unmarked grave. She gathers clues through conversations— these word-of-mouth accounts reveal the myth and mystery that surrounds Hurston's life. For example, Walker spoke with Sarah Peake Patterson, the director of the Lee Peak Mortuary that buried Hurston. Patterson believed Hurston died from malnutrition, when in fact she had a stroke. And
1: that is a fitting beginning point for this journey, because after that... It's unclear even where her unmarked grave is in the segregated cemetery where they go to find her, right? So there's this beautiful moment where Walker calls out to her. She says, Zora, not going to spend all day out here with this high grass and these snakes trying to find you. So tell me where you are, right? And in this gorgeous moment of narration, Walker uh, stumbles upon this sunken place in the ground, right? And realizes that this is where Hurston is buried.
0: Walker purchases a headstone and has it engraved with Zora Neale Hurston, a genius of the South. Novelist, folklorist, anthropologist, 1901 to 1960. So that, that's how it happened.
1: It was a, a labor of love um, with a little bit of, of lying thrown in there, you know, to help make it possible. My name is Joshua Bennett. I'm the Mellon Assistant Professor of English and Creative Writing at Dartmouth College, where I teach courses in African-American literature, environmental studies, affect theory, and American
0: poetry. Walker succeeded in marking Hurston's grave, and more. Thanks to her and other Black writers and academics, Hurston's works found a new audience. Her 1937 novel, Their Eyes Were Watching God, has become her most popular work. And so I've been trying to make sense of, I think, for a long time, especially in my life
1: as an educator, what it means that very few people in our country knew this woman's name for such a long time. And now it's one of the most widely taught books uh, in American curricula. And I think that's a pretty incredible transformation. Uh, A lot of people, many of whom are still living, right, they're still among us. A lot of artists, activists, and academics worked very hard to make that the case. And so I think it's a unique case study of what that sort of collective action can make possible. We can really honor ancestors, and we can bring their work back to life.
0: Welcome to Writ Large, a podcast about how books change the world. I'm Zachary Davis. In each episode, I talk with one of the world's leading scholars about one book that changed the course of history. For today's episode, I sat down with poet and professor Joshua Bennett to discuss Zora Neale Hurston's Their Eyes Were Watching God. And for those who haven't read it, can you give us a synopsis of what this story is about? Sure.
1: Uh, So Janie Crawford uh, is a young woman living in Eatonville, Florida. She is married off in large part due to pressure from her grandma, who's called Nanny uh, in the book, uh, to a man named Logan Killicks. Logan is seen as a good man. He owns land. right? He will ostensibly uh, take good care of her. Um, and this should be seen as, you know, a, a kind of a come up for our protagonist, right? A, a way for her to secure a respectable life. She has a difficult relationship with Logan in a no small part because she finds him to be very controlling. And as one that doesn't, there's no emphasis on intimacy kindness or kinship in her relationship with with logan he understands her as kind of an extension of his his property um in many ways though i think there's a real generosity there is a more generous reading available to us in terms of how we understand what logan's doing in the novel he just seems like kind of a basic guy he just wants to wake up and do chores and for him that's what marriage is it's another hand on the plow right um but Janie wants romance right and she's willing to pursue that for herself so another man comes into town jody Starks, and he says who's Who's the mayor of this town? And I said, We don't have a, a mayor. He's like, Well, I think I'm gonna be mayor. <laughs> right. <laughs> and and Jody takes it upon himself, right? He's he's much more industrious, right? Um And he's more inspirational rhetorically. I mean, Hurston was so great with language, right? So she gives us a completely different pitch for Jody, right? The language in which he's written, the way he talks. You can almost see quite clearly how Janie's taken with not just this younger man, but one that has a real zest to him, right? He's excited about life. So she leaves Logan to become the kind of first lady of the town, right? The mayor's wife. Um, And that, you know, is is well enough for some time uh, until Jody too comes to find that Janie is too big for him. Right, he wanted someone that would shrink next to him, that wouldn't take attention from him, because to his mind, he's worked quite hard. He's charismatic. He's brilliant. He he runs the town, and especially there's this moment where he and Janie have a kind of public argument in which she just undresses him, rhetorically, completely embarrasses him. Everyone laughs at him, right? And uh, Hurston says, you know, that's the worst thing a woman can uh, do to a man is throw down his armor before men, right? And so from that moment forward, their relationship really just sort of collapses and dissolves. And then one day, um, there's a man named TK who comes into the shop that she owns with Jody, right? And sweeps her off her feet, but largely through friendship, because uh, he takes her seriously as a person. Um, they play checkers together. Uh, they, you know, talk junk at the shop. Um, and they are people that grow close to one another in no small part because they feel very alone. Um, they don't really have anyone else. And eventually she runs away with tea cake to a place called The Muck, uh, which is essentially, how would I even describe this? I mean, it's it's another world. <laughs> you know, There is no post office on The Muck. You don't uh, just work a day job. You sort of labor in the mud. You grow what you can and you gamble and drink and dance and carouse at night. Um, and eventually there's a hurricane on The Muck. And during the course of that hurricane, a rabid dog attempts to bite Janie um, t grabs the dog, is bitten by the dog, contracts rabies, tries to kill Janie, and Janie has to shoot him in the chest, is then brought back to Eatonville to stand charges for Tk's cakes murder, um, is found not guilty, and then just has to sort of walk off into the sunset alone, but also with a, a sense of independence that I think people have rightly interpreted, but also a real heartbreak. I, I don't think... Hurston lets us off the hook with any sort of clean ending. Like, ah, she, you know, she killed her last lover tragically, but now she doesn't need anyone. And she's, that's not how it ends. (laughs) It really seems to me to be about the tragedy of life and how one survives what one must, you know, um, which I think is what Zora did herself.
0: Aspects of this book and many of Hurston's other works were autobiographical, but the facts weren't always clear. Part of what's so complicated about Hurston, I think, is you let her tell it, you wouldn't
1: know when she was born. Uh, you wouldn't know what was fact and what was fiction. And even in her genre work that's considered fiction, so many really incredible autobiographical details slip through, right? So someone named Joe Clark in the historical record becomes Jody Sparks uh, in the novel, right? So she gives you that, that sort of clue, but she's able to, to take those everyday details from her life and weave them quite beautifully through her writing.
0: Yeah, so she she grew up in Florida. Yes. How did her genius get recognized, and how did she get started?
1: Yeah, so I mean, there's a moment in her essay, How It Feels to Be Colored Me, where she talks about getting a scholarship to go to a school in Jacksonville, and how that was the first time she thought of herself uh, as a Black person in the way many people uh, mean that. It was the first time she found race, right? In part because Edenville, Florida, where she grew up, was a predominantly Black town, right? So for her... It was completely normative, normal, everyday, neutral (laughs) to be a black person. And it wasn't until her educational acumen, right, launched her from that place to somewhere else, right? So that was one lesson she learned, right? To be brilliant as she was meant that um, in the eyes of dominant society, she would have to leave the people that she was from. Right? She would have to learn new ways of writing and speaking and moving through the world. So that's part of how she got her start, right, is that she had to leave Eatonville. Uh, but how I think she really got her start in terms of being a popular writer was that she refused to let Eatonville leave her, right? So she took those stories and really threaded them quite powerfully into all of the narratives that she created. She never let go of the idea that poor people, um, and especially poor black people, had this vibrant culture that the world needed to know about. Right. She was willing to think about it on the global stage. So she started as a, a little girl on scholarship, uh, eventually became an adult woman on scholarship to, to Barnard right, to study under Franz Boas, um, and for, from there really just took off, uh, always living by her pen, right? but quite rarely sort of working a traditional day job, uh, but really made her, her way in the world as a writer.
0: Hurston was a key figure in the Harlem Renaissance, the cultural rebirth of African-American arts. This movement was centered in Harlem, in New York City, from the late 19-teens to the mid-1930s. The Harlem Renaissance helped to define Black American literature and arts and gave birth to many prominent authors, including Richard Wright, Langston Hughes, and Claude McKay. Many of these writers shared a goal, to elevate Black culture politically and socially. Hurston agreed, but she had her own way of going about it.
1: So part of the Harlem Renaissance, right, part of the the ideology behind it is the idea that we're going to clarified the extent to which this particular uh, American population, right, has been victimized by American society, right? Justly so. Very sort of righteous way to think about what literature is supposed to do. Now, for Zora, part of the issue there, I think at least, is she believes we lose the full spectrum of human beauty, complexity, and capacity when that is the sole aim of literary work, right? She's saying, well, what about evil, what about characters that are highly flawed? Do not Black Americans also deserve to have those sort of characters portrayed in literature?
0: To get the full picture, Hurston looked beyond
1: literature. So I think part of her interest in anthropology, right, was thinking what kind of disciplinary lens will allow me to give uh, language to that full breath, right? And also, how can I, if I'm going to say something about Black Americans on the global stage, I have to study the globe, right? I have to travel uh, not just throughout the African diaspora but to Latin America. I have to see the world and think about what are the threads that connect this particular subset of American people to people all over the world. oppressed peoples, of course, but just to humanity, right? And I think anthropology became one way uh, for Zora to do that and to undertake that, that labor.
0: Hurston wrote Their Eyes Were Watching God in just seven weeks, while she was on a Guggenheim fellowship researching spiritual healing practices in Haiti. I mean, as a working writer, one imagines
1: there is some financial component to that, <laughs> right? Is that you're like, look, I need to turn around a popular novel uh, that people are going to read and that's really going to resonate uh, in no small part because that's where I'm at in my life. That's how I, you know I butter my bread. And sadly, that's not how it worked out. It only sold about 5,000 copies uh, in its time. Um, And to to give some kind of comparison to this, in 1940, Richard Wright's Native Son will be a Book of the Month Club selection and will go on to sell uh, well over 300,000 copies, right? So there are still units moving uh, in this time period, even for Black American authors, and Zora's work does not sell well uh, by comparison.
0: Why do you think the work did struggle to find an audience initially, And, and what was the critical reception like? The critical reception was poor. So on the one
1: hand, the idea was that it wasn't sufficiently political, right? She's written this love story, right? About a woman's coming of age, right? In Florida, uh, two failed marriages, right? Arguably three, right? Depending on what you think of her final marriage to a man named Tea Cake, right? There's all this uh, vibrant life, right? But for someone like Richard Wright, he said explicitly, this is a depiction of black life in the United States as the white reader already imagines it, he says, right? That it keeps them in that comfortable space, quote, between laughter and tears, right? So for him, he's saying this actually isn't teaching us anything new about black people. It's menstrualcy, right? Which you've put forward. It's not sufficiently political and it's not sufficiently serious, right? Now there are white critics that are saying some of the same things, but from some of the white critics what they're saying as well is that there's great color and vibrance, right? So it's fine, but it's not spectacular. You know, it's not a triumph, right? Uh, and there you see what is sort of a persistent theme of African-American culture and life, right? This idea that one has to be twice as good, right? You can't just write, you know, this beautiful, because it's gorgeous, right? I mean, it's, it's, it lyrically soars, this novel, um, but that's not enough. It's supposed to do a certain kind of sociopolitical work in order for it to be viable. And so it falls out of favor, not just in its cultural moment, but even in the years to come right as um as black studies you know from 1968 forward becomes a kind of institutional enterprise where you have colleges and universities where these these works are taught zora Hurston is somehow still not part of the conversation right until she's recovered um, by alice walker
0: you know later in the 20th century how did alice walker know that that was indeed her grave i mean so in the in the essay it it seems
1: like it's kind of a mystical events right like she says there was no other spot that it could have been based on this entire field that i'd surveyed and that when she knew she knew right which for me too seems you know fitting enough you know because uh, we do know that that zora was buried there in that that grave site um and and i'm i'm willing to take walker's word you
0: know for it walker's essay ends with a conversation she spoke with one of hurston's neighbors and he told her that hurston lived with her dog sport and had a beautiful garden full of flowers, including her favorite azaleas.
1: Um, there, there's something about that that lasting image of her that was recovered, not from any archival document, uh, but from a conversation that I think is quite fitting because that's how Zora Neale Hurston uh, built her career was off of conversations with everyday people, uh, which she believed I think held the the shimmering ore of human experience. Um, anything you needed to know about human beings, you could find by talking to. Uh, a poor person making their living from the land.
0: So let's dig into the tension that I think Zora's career and reception revealed, which is there were some black intellectuals and, and artists who probably wanted to create elite culture mm-hmm. and then some who wanted to, in some ways, elevate ordinary black life yes. culture. and. How did Zora navigate those two tensions? I mean, she was at Barnard. <laughs> she was you know, right. well-received by many critics and, and yet retained this devotion to Eatonville and yeah. the stories there.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think she she paid the price, right? For that reason. I think part of even what you can trace from the reception is a suspicion of her because she was in elite space, right? The idea was that she's putting on this act, right? Someone like Richard Wright, I mean, didn't finish high school, like (laughs) taught himself how to write while working in the post office. I mean, it was really self-made in a certain kind of way. Whereas you have Zorna Hurston with her elite education. And the idea is if she's writing like this, she's writing in in this kind of a Floridian dialect. I mean, this must be for a white audience, right? This can't be because of some idea that you can recover a black culture um, that exists for its own purposes, sort of not even outside of a white gaze, but almost Indifferent to it, ambivalent about it <laughs> right I mean, I think that's one of the, the best ways to characterize her entire oeuvre, right with a real sort of ambivalence, right so Zora w- really had a human vision <laughs> right and the idea that her racial identity made it her responsibility to speak to a very specific kind of political identity I mean that that just seemed very silly to her she said I'm writing, I'm imagining worlds, right and I think I mean, I keep saying some version of this phrase, she paid the price for it, but it really does strike me that she could have very easily um, written a very different sort of fiction. I mean, she had political ideas. I mean, she wrote speeches that were anti-colonialist in nature, but the
0: fiction itself, it strikes me, had just a very different tone and texture to it, you know? So of all her works, why, why has this one received the most attention? Why did it make it into my high school curriculum at Dixie High School in St. George, Utah? Um... What was it about this one among all the others? There's something about
1: Janie Crawford's coming of age and the way this novel ends and the way she takes her own life in her hands that I think coincides quite beautifully with a second wave black feminism and its emergence in the United States uh, with womanism, right, which is a kind of political ideology that Alice Walker creates, right, as she calls the the sort of lavender, if, if feminism is purple, then, then womanism is lavender, right? As a specific sort of focus on Black women's concerns. My sense is that its emergence in that moment has something to do with the way it's then taken up as a really powerful avatar um, for Black women's experiences writ large, right? Not just Janie, but also this author, right? Whose work was completely overridden Right? mostly by the critical voices of men in her time, was recovered by this Black woman who had to engage in all sorts of fugitive maneuvers, even to find her grave, much less resuscitate her corpus, right, on her, her body of work. And I think those forces really combined in that moment to say, we have to recover this. This is central. And also the work of prominent Black academics, right, um, not just uh, Skip Gates, but Kwame Anthony Appie. I mean, there were a number, June Jordan, a number of voices of people that said, this needs to be taught. And I think that's why it's held its place, you know, but because people refuse to let it fade again, right? It did once and they said, never again, we're gonna make this push uh, so that young people can read it, you know, and be influenced by it for years to come.
0: One of those people was Professor Bennett himself. Find out how this book changed him right after the break. With 130 million books in the world, deciding which one to read can be hard. Enter Bookable, the podcast where established authors and emerging talent lead the way through an immersive sound experience of their book. Join host Amanda Stern to explore award-winning novels, secret masterpieces, and even a few forgotten gems. Subscribe and hear why Bookable is getting rave reviews. Bookable is from Loudtree Media and available on Lyceum or wherever you get your podcasts. Could you tell us a little bit about how this work has Uh, changed your thinking and and opened up
1: ideas for you? I think almost the entirety of my formal education has militated against the idea that I should ever write seriously about people where I come from. So I was born in the Bronx, grew up in uh, South Yonkers, and reading Hurston's work in college and then again in graduate school, it gave me an idea I haven't been able to shake which is that I should be able to write beautifully about marginalized people in the language that we ourselves use to describe our conditions, if, they, if that makes sense. That Hurston never wrote about the people in Eatonville as if they were pitiable or as if they weren't resourceful or brilliant or imaginative or mentally dexterous or creative uh, or worthy of praise. And I think... My first uh, book of poetry is quite academic. I think I, you know, I sort of wrote it that way on purpose. I was finishing my dissertation at the time, and that's what a serious American poet is supposed to do. <laughs> and I think a lot of my newer work, I hope, you know, I, it's been influenced by Hurston in a very different way. I think I'm allowing myself to let much more of the music of the of the places that raised me seep into
0: it. So that's one way that the work has changed my life. It seems like she has this extraordinary capacity to. Describe and 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 uh, depict full human beings yes and it seems like what she was rebelling against was a politically inspired reduction um, and uh, it's, it's challenging because of course one can be sympathetic to mm-hmm. the goals of political liberation, but an artist is a, is attentive to kind of deeper expressions of soul and yes, struggle and triumph.
1: Yes, yes, yes. Wasn't interested in clean categories, you know, sort of easy victims and heroes, captives and captors. Zora was trying to live in the, the muck of it all, the messiness of human experience. She's writing this way in the, the 30s. Mind-blowing, right? I mean, emancipation is, is not even 70 years old, right? And Hurston is writing and thinking this way. She's saying, okay, I live in the afterlife of slavery, right? I'm trying to make sense of what blackness means. And I promise it's nowhere near as simple as you want me to make it. (laughs) And I believe that everyone, right, not just black people or white people, right? Everyone is complex enough to deal with that complexity, right? I'm going to write it as messy as it actually is. Not, not with a particular political agenda that I know in advance and that is completed by the end of the work. That just wasn't interesting to her. Um, and I think, I mean, I, I'm completely open to arguments that that needs to be done, that we need propagandists, that we need polemic. But that, that can't be the work of, of everyone that's here, everyone in the room, <laughs> right? But she believed something about life on earth and about writing as a real vocation, writing as a calling. And when writing is your calling, you're responsible for people and you're responsible for what you say. So I think you have to write with a aesthetics and an ethics that echo what you believe. Not, not your. I'm not saying you have to write a manifesto every time you step to the page, but I think even when you create fictional worlds, fictional characters, you are responsible for what they do and say. And you wanna communicate something about humanity, I imagine, when you create that work, I, I think. That's my sense, at least, of her project um, or any project that would make me want to commit my life to writing. So, yeah, she didn't want to fit into the box, you know, no matter what. I think she also didn't think that gets you to freedom. I I think she's right. Those debates are still happening. I think those debates are even more electrified now in the social media age right it just seems like you can get cancelled yeah you have to sort of make a clean claim and that claim also has to be tied to all of your identity categories at once right it just has to be like look you are you know a poor non-disabled black person from a certain part of the world thus your politics need to look like this and if they do not then we reserve the right to keep you from being able to feed yourself I mean, the first people I ever taught were incarcerated, right? And so some of this for me feels so deeply carceral as well in a, in a way that's very, very strange. It's that someone said the wrong thing 10 years ago. Now I don't want to talk to them, and you shouldn't want to talk to them either, and we shouldn't read anything they ever wrote. And I've had students ask me that about particular authors, you know? We're reading Whitman. Isn't he canceled? Right? It's like... <laughs> Is it an author cancel? What what is that even? What would that even? He's dead. Like, what would that even entail? And why is that something we want to pursue, right? Even if we don't agree with their views, isn't that more the reason to read it? And if we're going to critique it, why don't we have the most robust language possible to say what we disagree with, which requires us to
0: engage the idea. You know, no, I think, uh, I mean, it just shows how alive the debates were back then for sure, and that they haven't really gone away. No way, I
1: don't even think her critics are operating in bad faith. That's the thing, too. At, at least, many of the African American critics, I mean, it really struck me that they were saying we have a tight window here, right? To get people to believe we're human beings, we don't have time for the fanciful love story stuff. We need you to hit hard with sociological, <laughs> you know, data that shows we are people that have families, and you know. And Hirsten's inve- invested in wildness. She's invested in wildness. She's not invested in a kind of normative framing of, of black. Part of the beauty of it is that our exclusion from the modern world has produced all these forms of relation that are quite incredible. And now I think as we return to it, we're like,
0: are more ecologically sustainable too. <laughs> Once it got taken up again by Alice Walker mm-hmm. uh, post-74, uh, um, how did this book start to shape other Mm -hmm. artists, um, Mm. how did it shape society as a whole? Um, How can we start to think about the influence of this this great work?
1: I see its influence in some of the most prominent African-American novelists today. So someone like Jasmine Ward, I think, is a really good example. So two of her first three novels won the National Book Award right? Um, salvage the Bones and Sing Unburied, Sing. And when you read her, she's writing not about Eatonville, Florida, but about a, a fictional place uh, called Bois Sauvage, Mississippi, right? Which is a, would be French for Wildwood, right? She's very much interested, like Hurston, and what you were saying earlier, what the South, in particular the poor Black South, I don't want to lose the class element of this because it's key, <laughs> right? We're talking specifically about a, a certain strand of human poverty, right? What that has to teach us. Right. about love and about kinship over and against a world that says those people have no love, they have no kinship, right? Uh, they're addicts and alcoholics who don't take care of themselves. Uh, if they did love themselves and love their kids, they would give up on those folksy ways, right? And come into the modern world and put on, put on uh, suits, you know? And I think we're seeing the resonances of that kind of work all across contemporary African-American writing and in the
0: poetry, too, And do you see some of its influence in other Black cultural forms or Mm. feminist cultural forms or... I mean, Issa Rae is a great example
1: of that with a show like Insecure, right? Really saying that this Black woman's love relationships can be the premise of an entire HBO show. (laughs) And we're just going to follow the way that she navigates it, right? And like with Zora, like race is always in the room, but it's not... The racial politics of that show are kind of, you know, not the point necessarily, right? It's really just about black people being alive, which is the same thing Donald Glover says about Atlanta, right? He says it's the black Seinfeld. Well, that's sort of a strange comparison until you really dig into it. It's like, oh wait, it's just about you being alive with your friends. There is no larger political project, <laughs> right? Or maybe there, I mean, maybe the political project is that
0: you're just live on TV, right? Sitting on the couch. Yeah, I can't help but keep coming back to the question. Like, I wonder if you, you achieve your political goals Better hmm. by giving a full portrait of the humanity of whatever group you're trying to active, you know, actively elevate. Rather than, I mean, all modes are wonderful. <laughs> There's yeah, probably yeah, yeah, many yeah. different ways, but it, it's actually harder to achieve, but but much more powerful to tell a story that, that any human being can identify with. Yes,
1: and that, but you have to believe that's possible. One right. And that's tough. I, I do, I, I want to be clear, that's very, very difficult. Like part of what someone like Donald Glover or Issa Rae is up against is a symbolic order, right? In which blackness is meant to signify nothing, right? It's meant to signify slavehood, emptiness, chaos, right? And being brave enough to say, no, I'm just going to tell this story with no tropes you're familiar with. To say you think you're familiar with these tropes, but you're actually not. These aren't minstrel characters. It's just the way Black people in my small Florida town actually talk. And I'm not going to, quote-unquote, clean up the way they talk so that I can make them seem, you know, advanced or something. Like, this is, it's not primitivist in its aims. I'm just writing it the way I hear it. And that, to me, is incredibly courageous. It's like the, uh, the old Chris Rock joke about... um integrating baseball, right? He's like, baseball's not integrated with Jackie Robinson. Baseball's integrated once we start getting mediocre black baseball players, <laughs> <laughs> right? Like, that's that's equality, right? That's maybe in some ways a certain vision of justice. Room to fail, right? Not just, right. you know, the most sterling, incredible figures are taught in schools. Like, yeah, of course, Martin Luther King's birth. I mean, but that that brother was like a singular rhetorician, human being, <laughs> activist, thinker, writer. Um, what would it look like instead to have a net that's wide enough, right? That just sort of everyday people can have their stories brought into the classroom, brought into literature, brought into television, right? What would that world look like?
0: I, I guess I, I, it comes back to this this confidence um, to tell your own stories. Mm-hmm. Um, that um, it's a love story. Mm-hmm. It, it's, a, it's a coming of age story, it's a love story. And it's ordinary in many yes. ways. Uh, but the artistry itself is extraordinary.
1: Yes. To tell the stories of ordinary people, I think, is emboldening, right? Because even when you ask people about, I'm just asking you to give a synopsis, and it's like, yeah, someone falls in love a bunch of times. And it fails every time. And then the story ends. <laughs> and we don't know what happens to to Janie, but we imagine she figures it out, right? That it's really just about the life and times and the failures of this you know ordinary and extraordinary you know extraordinary spirit, but ostensibly ordinary black woman living her life and I think there's just something to that that was inspiriting and emboldening for generations of black writers right that emboldened someone to get on a plane and fly to Florida and find an unmarked grave and market i mean that that to me is is part of the proof right there right is is Alice Walker's writing in life and legacy right is saying you you deserved better um but also your story's not over, that we can add to it, right? So I think the, the book really opened up space for us to say there needs to be an archival impulse that's part of the work we do implicitly, right? We are in the business now of recovering ancestors and of singing their beauty and brilliance. So I think that's part of how it, it changed everything. It was saying it's not just that the canons have gaps, it's that they have sort of enforced absences, right? People that were pushed out actively Uh, of our collective memory and we have to go get those people right and that's the only ethical way maybe to be a writer right now
0: is to have that work as part of your labor this was part of Hurston's work as well she had two professions writer and anthropologist she studied and documented black cultural practices in the Caribbean and the American South she found stories that might be erased from the historical record stories that mattered in a way Alice Walker continued that legacy traveling to the South to document the life and death of Hurston herself, and writing it back into history, this time in permanent ink. I just don't imagine it falling out of favor again,
1: in part because there really is a kind of universal story here, right? As Janie moves from Logan Killicks to Jody to Tea Cake, it really is someone trying to think about what love is for, what love makes of us, and how to navigate it. What parts of yourself do you keep? What parts of yourself do you lose when you fall in love? When does love need to be left? Um, how have and how can black women survive the modern world? I mean, these are, these are themes that I think are just explored so elegantly in the, in the book and with, with such care. Every time I read it, I find something new. So it's gonna be around. It'll be with us for a while. I don't think we'll lose it again. We won't let that happen.
0: Rit Large is produced by Galen Beebe, Jack Pombriant, and me, Zachary Davis. We get help from Ferrandu, and our intern is Liza French. Our theme song is by Ian Koss, and our branding is by Dan Petschy. We're a member of Lit Hub Radio. Writ Large is a Lyceum original production. Lyceum is a curated podcast app with a hand-picked catalog of educational shows. This week, we put a bonus episode up on Lyceum. You can hear my entire interview with Professor Bennett. We talked about a lot that didn't make it into the episode. So if you like what you heard here, check that out. You can download the app in the App Store or in Google Play. It's L-Y-C-E-U-M. You can also find us on Twitter at writlargepod and on our website writlarge.fm. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Next time on Writ I sit down with Harvard professor Saul Zaret to discuss the stories behind the hit musical Fiddler on the Roof. When he wrote the Tevye stories, author Sholem Aleichem was trying to create a high literature for Yiddish-speaking readers. But his stories touched readers and viewers around the world. The book uh, gives the world a character who embodies
1: uh, some of the tensions that we think of when we're imagining how modernity works. So it's a text that gives us the model for how to talk through the issues of being a modern person without resolving them. That's how, that's how I think how important this book is. As, as, as a text that gives us a vocabulary
0: for, for, for not stopping talking. This episode will only be available on the Lyceum app. You can download it on the App Store or Google Play. It's L-Y-C-E-U-M.